This is Puritan's Read, where we read aloud great Puritan works, authors, and biographies. Today, episode two of The Life of David Brainerd by Jonathan Edwards. Sometimes I was greatly encouraged and imagined that God loved me and was pleased with me and thought I should soon be fully reconciled to God. But the whole was founded on mere presumption arising from enlargement in duty or warmth of affection or some good resolutions or the like. And when at times great distress began to arise on a sight of my vileness and inability to deliver myself from a sovereign God, I used to put off the discovery as what I could not bear Once I remember, a terrible pang of distress seized me, and the thought of renouncing myself and standing naked before God, stripped of all goodness, was so dreadful to me that I was ready to say to it, as Felix to Paul, Go thy way for this time. Thus, though I daily longed for greater conviction of sin, supposing that I must see more of my dreadful state in order to a remedy. Yet, when the discoveries of my vile, wicked heart were made to me, the sight was so dreadful and showed me so plainly my exposedness to damnation that I could not endure it. I constantly strove after whatever qualifications I imagined others obtained before the reception of Christ, in order to recommend me to his favor. Sometimes I felt the power of a hard heart, and supposed it must be softened before Christ would accept of me. And when I felt any meltings of heart, I hoped now the work was almost done. Hence, When my distress still remained, I was wont to murmur at God's dealings with me and thought, when others felt their hearts softened, God showed them mercy, but my distress remained still. At times, I grew remiss and sluggish, without any great convections of sin, for a considerable time together. But after such a season, convictions sometimes seized me more violently. One night, I remember in particular, when I was walking solitarily abroad, I had opened to me such a view of my sin that I feared the ground would cleave asunder under my feet and become my grave and send my soul quick into hell before I could get home. Though I was forced to go to bed, lest my distress should be discovered by others, which I much feared, yet I scarcely durst sleep at all, for I thought it would be a great wonder if I should be out of hell in the morning. And though my distress was sometimes thus great, yet I greatly dreaded the loss of convictions and returning back to a state of carnal security and to my former insensibility of impending wrath, which made me exceedingly exact in my behavior, lest I should stifle 
the motions of God's Holy Spirit. When at any time I took a view of my convictions and thought the degree of them to be considerable, I was wont to trust in them, but this confidence and the hope of soon making some notable advances toward deliverance would ease my mind, and I soon became more senseless and remiss. Again, when I discerned my convictions to grow languid and thought them about to leave me, this immediately alarmed and distressed me. Sometimes I expected to take a large step and get very far toward conversion by some particular opportunity or means I had in view. The many disappointments, the great distress and perplexity which I experienced put me into a most horrible frame of contesting with the Almighty, with inward vehemence and virulence, finding fault with his ways of dealing with mankind. My wicked heart often wished for some other way of salvation than by Jesus Christ. Being like the troubled sea, my thoughts confused, I used to contrive to escape the wrath of God by some other means. I had strange projects, full of atheism, contriving to disappoint God's designs and decrees concerning me, or to escape his notice and hide myself from him. But when, upon reflection, I saw these projects were vain and would not serve me, and that I could not contrive nothing for my own relief, this would throw my mind into the most horrid frame, to wish there was no God, or to wish there was some other God that could control him. These thoughts and desires were the secret inclinations of my heart, frequently acting before I was aware. But alas, they were mine, although I was frightened when I came to reflect on them. When I considered, it distressed me to think that my heart was so full of enmity against God, and it made me tremble, lest his vengeance should suddenly fall upon me. I used before to imagine that my heart was not so bad as the scriptures and some other books represented it. Sometimes I used to take much pains to work it up into a good frame, a humble, submissive disposition, and hoped there was then some goodness in me. But on a sudden, the thoughts of the strictness of the law or the sovereignty of God would so irritate the corruption of my heart that I had so watched over and hoped I had brought to a good frame that it would break over all bounds and burst forth on all sides like floods of waters when they break down their dam. Being sensible of the necessity of deep humiliation in order to a saving close with Christ, I used to set myself to produce in my own heart the convictions requisite in such a humiliation. As, 
a conviction that God would be just if he cast me off forever, that if ever God should bestow mercy on me, it would be mere grace, though I should be in distress many years first and be never so much engaged in duty, and that God was not in the least obliged to pity me the more for all past duties, cries, and tears. I strove to my utmost to bring myself to a firm belief of these things and a hearty assent to them, and hoped that now I was brought off from myself, truly humbled, and that I bowed to the divine sovereignty. I was wont to tell God in my prayers that now I had those very dispositions of soul which he required and on which he showed mercy to others and thereupon to beg and plead for mercy to me. But when I found no relief and was still oppressed with guilt and fears of wrath, my soul was in a tumult and my heart rose against God as dealing hardly with me. Yet then my conscience flew in my face, putting me in mind of my late confession to God of his justice in my condemnation. This giving me a sight of the badness of my heart threw me again into distress. And I wished that I had watched my heart more narrowly to keep it from breaking out against God's dealings with me. I even wished that I had not pleaded for mercy on account of my humiliation, because thereby I had lost all my seeming goodness. Thus, scores of times, I vainly imagined myself humbled and prepared for saving mercy. While I was in this distressed, bewildered, and tumultuous state of mind, The corruption of my heart was especially irritated with the following things. Number one, the strictness of the divine law. For I found it was impossible for me, after my utmost pains, to answer its demands. I often made new resolutions, and as often, broke them. I imputed the whole to carelessness and the want of being more watchful and used to call myself a fool for my negligence. But when, upon a stronger resolution and greater endeavors and close application to fasting and prayer, I found all attempts fail. Then I quarreled with the law of God as unreasonably rigid. I thought, if it extended only to my outward actions and behavior, that I could bear with it. But I found that it condemned me for my evil thoughts and sins of my heart, which I could not possibly prevent. I was extremely loath to own my utter helplessness in this matter. But after repeated disappointments, thought that rather than perish, I could do a little more still, especially if such and such circumstances might but attend my endeavors and strivings. I hoped 
that I should strive more earnestly than ever. If the matter came to extremity, though I never could find the time to do my utmost in the manner I intended. This hope of future, more favorable circumstances, and of doing something great hereafter, kept me from utter despair in myself and from seeing myself fallen into the hands of a sovereign God and dependent on nothing but free and boundless grace. Number two, another point that irritated me was that faith alone was the condition of salvation. That God would not come down to lower terms and that he would not promise life and salvation upon my sincere and hearty prayers and endeavors. That word, Mark sixteen sixteen. He that believeth not shall be damned. Cut off all hope there. I found that faith was the sovereign gift of God, that I could not get it as of myself and could not oblige God to bestow it upon me by any of my performances. Ephesians 2, 1, 8. This, I was ready to say, is a hard saying. Who can hear it? I could not bear that all I had done should stand for mere nothing, as I had been very conscientious in duty, had been very religious a great while, and had, as I thought, done much more than many others who had obtained mercy. I confessed, indeed, the vileness of my duties, but then... What made them at that time seem vile was my wandering thoughts in them, rather than because I was all over defiled like a devil, and the principle corrupt from whence they flowed, so that I could not possibly do anything that was good. Hence, I called what I did by the name of honest, faithful endeavors, and could not bear it that God had made no promises of salvation to them. This concludes episode two of Jonathan Edwards' The Life of David Brainerd.